attention, please. Good morning or good evening, depending on whatever shift your seniority allows you to hold. I'm William Young, correctional officer and author of When Home Becomes a Housing Unit. Tonight I'll be your ever-so-gracious host and director of the dialogue for the duration of this discussion. Allow me to welcome you with warm, unwavering, outstretched, and open arms to this week's edition of the Saturday Night Synopsis. Tonight, my brave brothers and sisters, I have with me a special guest, a former correctional officer and hostage situation survivor. He's been gracious enough to come help us and share his story tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome John Centoros. John, welcome to the program. All right, John. So I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody that I talk to, everybody that worked in corrections. Uh, how did you get into corrections? Why, why did you choose this field? Uh, well, it was kind of a unique scenario. I mean, I... To be quite honest, I never envisioned myself being a correctional officer. Um, it was a job that just kind of came up literally out of the blue, out of a random conversation. Uh, about, I want to say late in 2011, I was working in the, in the hospitality field, uh, kind of navigating where I wanted to go in that, in that industry. And I knew that there was a jail in town, didn't know much about it, didn't know very many people that worked there. Um, and when I was picking up my youngest daughter from a private daycare one day, I knew that the the husband in that family was a correctional officer. But again, just knew him through an acquaintance, through an acquaintance, didn't really understand what exactly his job was, aside from what I had seen in movies and theater and all that kind of stuff. And when I was picking up my daughter one day from, from his house, he kind of came up to me with a letter and said, uh, you know, you ever thought about working in the jail? And I kind of looked at him and I said, what? Thinking... <laughs> Are you seriously asking about that? Right. And he gave me a letter, an internal letter that they had been circulating in the jail and they were looking to hire internally and they were in a hired a hiring um, blitz. And he said, we're looking for good people at the jail. You should read this letter, you know, just in case you're interested, interested. And I kind of took the letter thinking, okay, well, you know, I'll read it, but not, didn't, didn't think much of it. And I kind of glanced over it very briefly, you know, summarizing what the job was. And, and I honed in on what at the time was a significant amount of, money per hour significantly higher than what I was making. And when I saw that money, uh, that hourly wage, I thought, Hmm, uh, that kind of changes things because again, my pay scale was significantly lower than that. And I thought, well, it's at least worth a look who knows, right? Who, who knows what it's all about. Right. So maybe fast forward a couple weeks later, I was chatting with my wife and I said, uh, I think I'm going to go look into the working at the jail. And same thing. She looked at me and was like, what you want to work where? And I said, well, you know, I looked, got this letter and thought maybe it'd be worth looking into. And 
from at the, at the time when I looked into it, I thought I'll apply. You know, I heard the hiring process was pretty long and pretty drawn out. I thought nothing of it. And I thought, what's the worst that could happen? And we had a serious discussion about, you know, what it could be, what it could look like. And I just was, I was more set on, I could apply and nothing could happen. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of a point, but I'll never know if I try. And we talked about, you know, some of our family goals that we had and it. To me, it, it, it was a job that meant some security, long-term security. From what I understood, people were in the industry for a long time. Um, there was a, a pension there, which was never in my radar in terms of employment. I thought a pension's good, right? You think of retirement, you think of all these long-term goals in your employment. I thought I'll apply, start the process, and then who knows what happens. So I had no idea how long of a process that was going to be. It actually ended up being from start to finish, I want to say like eight to nine months. It was a pretty long hiring process. Yeah. There was an online application. There was a written test. There was a physical test. There was a, you know, uh, all these different stages, but these stages were so drawn out that, you know, I would do the first stage. I wouldn't hear anything for about a month and a half. And I thought, well, I guess that's it. Then I get an email out of the blue. You've made it to the next stage. Right. Okay. Go to the next stage. Two or three more, more months pass. And I thought, well, I guess that's as far as I got, get a phone call, get a phone call. So finally, by the end of it, I, you know, um, I got a phone call out of the blue, same idea, picking up my daughter from school one day. And it was like, this is Sergeant so-and-so from the department of so-and-so. And I was like, oh yeah, that job I applied for. I guess I, I guess I made it. And the conversation was, you need to be in this city in about two weeks for a 16 week training course. And I thought, okay, it's getting real now. Now we're going to do it. So that's kind of how I literally fell into the job. So, so you didn't have any law enforcement. You didn't have anybody in your family that, that kind of, you know, put you onto it. You just, you just set up your buddy said, let's do no, it. No, I mean, I just looked at it and I said, you know, this, this job could, you know, be a game changer in terms of, you know, some, uh, some family goals that we had, like we had just, uh, we had just bought our first house. So we had some serious renovations we wanted to get in. And I just looked at it as, as a job that, you know, could be interesting. Um, could have some longevity, could have a pension. And from what I understand, once you're in the ministry and in, 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 the, in the Ontario uh, side of things, there's an opportunity to move up and lateral and, you know, kind of um, move around in that career. So um, I knew there was opportunity to move around the ministry. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just get in there, you know, work the job for a couple of years and see where I can go. Right. So, so I go- knew, I knew little of it. And of course, I got, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, no, I'm sorry. I was, I was, so what was your first day like when you did you so was it like a training area and then they assigned you to a facility or did you know which facility you were going to so where i'm situated up in northern ontario they they had they've always had a hard time um getting officers to work up there uh we're pretty much considered what would be a, a remote region of ontario so they always had a hard time recruiting officers in that area so they would always uh either try and you know bring people from Southern Ontario to move up, or they would do, you know, hiring blitzes at that time. And in the unique situation that I was in, um, before I got into the ministry, before I got hired, um, in our region, they had been, they had been actually uh, gone through a labor dispute beforehand, and they actually hadn't hired new officers in Ontario for around six or seven years. There was a labor discussion between the union and the employer, and they came to this agreement, well, we're going to, we're going to do a a province-wide hiring freeze. Wow. And I wasn't really educated on what that meant. So when we got hired, we were literally the first group of officers hired, brand new officers in the institutions in about six or seven years. So 
once we got through the training academy, once we arrived at our institutions, I knew that I was going to be working in my hometown of Kenora. There was opportunities to work elsewhere, but I thought I have no desire to move my family. I have no desire to move myself. So if I'm going to get hired, I want to work in Kenora. And once we got to the academy stage, and once we got you know far enough along, we were able to to request our places. But because we were such a uh, a new crop of officers that they were like, wherever you want to work, you can work. And I thought, perfect. I'm in a good spot. I'd like to work in Kenora. And so out of the, I want to say, I want to say there was maybe our, our, our class was a class of, I want to say like maybe 30, four of us went to Kenora and of the, of the four of us that went to Kenora, we were all from Kenora. So that's where we wanted to go. So this 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 it was a jail. Then how big? How many beds did this uh, jail have? I mean, what? T- talk about the facility a little bit. Set the stage for me. Well, from what I understand, um, the Kenora Jail, and I could be wrong about this because it, the information changes all the time. Um, it's it's basically what would be considered a um, like a remand center. So anybody who's staying at the Kenora Jail usually are going through the court process. So they're either um, awaiting a court date or, or being transferred out, that kind of thing. Um, I want to say the bed count is maybe, and I could be wrong about this. I want to say about a hundred and maybe 130, 140. So it's, it's a, it's a smaller jail in terms of some of the bigger centers, um, in Ontario. Uh, it houses male and female inmates. Uh, there used to be, there used to be a, I want to say a youth element in that one, but they, they kind of amalgamated some of the, some of the inmates back in the day. Um, so primarily it's, it's males and with a little bit of, of females. Like if I were to say a hundred inmates, I'd say 85 males and 15 females. So there's, uh, male dorms and female dorms. Was it a, uh, are these like dormitory style or are they celled units? Um, what, what did it look uh, like? No, there, there's both. I mean, the building itself has, has been, it's old. I want, like it's gotta be up to about a hundred years old. Um, but they've taken so many dorm areas and had them refitted and retrofitted and um there are cells uh, and ranges and, and cell blocks but there's also dorm styles there's also um um like certain areas where you look at it and kind of say that that's a dorm but they're using it as another you know another uh method so it's pretty much got everything that you would that you would consider in a, in a jail but it's just they're constantly shifting and moving things around so so how how long did you work there before uh, your the situation happened with you? I was in there coming up on about. I got hired in 2012, and it was just about four and a half years before uh, before that day. So I wasn't in there very long. Um, you know, I I want I and I don't consider myself uh, somebody with you know many many years of experience, but I do have experience in my short time there. Um, but I saw right away when I, when I got in there, you know, what somebody with like 25, 30 plus years, um, can be like if they don't have, you know, appropriate coping methods and, you know, didn't leave a healthy lifestyle. A lot of the stuff they told us at the training academy, I saw right away, like, oh, that's, there's an example of what they talked about. And there's an example of what they talked about. So, um, yeah, I mean, I saw some things in my small jail that, to be quite honest was, you know, I'd always tell people that, you know, I can't make this stuff up, but we see in here, like you would never understand. So, um, even though they, they, they trained us in scenarios, they trained us through, you know, the academy, all that kind of stuff. 
I want to say like most of that stuff didn't apply once we got in there. And some of the officers I worked with when they got there, when I got there, they were pretty open and honest about, you know, take whatever you learned at the academy and just throw it out the window because now <laughs> is your first real training. Day one, we're going to, we're going to train you now. So, you know. Yeah. We talk about that a lot, the divide from, from what you learn in the classroom and actually how the job is. And, and I had a guy on uh, a few weeks ago and he talked about how training manuals don't scream at you. Training manuals don't try to stab you. And, and you know, and I just thought that was great. So I'm going to repeat that as often as I can. Uh, uh, but so tell me a little bit about that day. It was, uh, was it a, was there anything weird about it? Did you get up and, and do your normal routine? I mean, walk us through what, what was going on. Um, yeah, I mean, it was in all sense, a regular day. Um, and it's funny because every time this conversation starts, every time, you know, the, the common question was, so did you like notice anything was off? Did you, you know, did you kind of have that sense they're talking about where, where things didn't feel right? There were many, many days before that day where, you know, I would be considered, you know, I, I was in a scenario where I was, I would have that feeling of something doesn't feel right. Or, you know, even before the whole thing played out, I was in way worse scenarios than that day. So that's why it made it so, so much more surprising when it actually unfolded because I'm thinking back on some of the days where, where, you know, I was in what I would be considered at that time, real danger, or man, I was in a bad spot there or, you know, so the day itself, I mean, aside from the typical, you know, daily operations of a jail, there was nothing, uh, there was nothing too out of the blue on that day. We actually had a little bit of a, what would be considered um, a use of force incident mm -hmm. earlier in the day in a separate location, which I was involved in. So most of the experience that I was involved if you had one incident, maybe two, that was kind of the, the climax of the day. That was like your, your bad part of the day. So that, that day itself, um, there was actually a use of force incident earlier in the day. I want to say it was around maybe 10 AM. So earlier in the day, um, nothing out of the ordinary, you know, nothing kind of that I hadn't seen before or been a part of before. It just seemed regular routine. It was later on in the day where, where that's when my scenario happened. So in terms of the day itself, pretty typical. And in terms of the incident itself, nothing that I hadn't done a thousand times before, nothing that I had done differently. Like I replay that day over and over and I always think, did I do something different? Did I do, you know, was there something else going on? And I'm thinking, no, like it was just a, a regular day. John, how, how, how many officers were on duty that day? How many, like what's the inmate to officer ratio at that, at that facility? Hmm. Well, I don't remember exactly the count of that day was, but um, typically in a day, if we have everybody on staff or everybody scheduled, you you have what's called a full complement. I don't remember, to be honest, if we had a full complement that day. Um, I know there was, you know, I want to say maybe maybe twenty officers working uh, uh, on a full day in our in our jail with all the posts and positions. I want to say if we have a full complement, we're maybe hovering around. 26, 25. So I don't remember if it was actually a full complement. Um, but we have um, different posts and, and different officers are assigned posts and that kind of thing. So on any given shift, depending on where you're positioned in the jail, you could be looking after an inmate count as low as four, or you could be looking after an inmate count as high as 30. So it really depends on where that officer was in that, in that day. 
that day itself when I was working, I wasn't assigned a specific post. I was what's called a, um, a duty officer or utility officer. My job was basically to go around and go where I needed to go. So at the time of my incident, I was on what's called like lunch break. My job was to go around and to make sure all my fellow officers had their lunch break, right? Because many times, and as you know, as well as I do, right. if we're short staffed, you don't get a break, right, right? right? You're just, you keep working, right? Yeah. So many times I would make sure that if I was that duty officer, I was going to make sure that everybody had a break, whether I, whether it pushed back my break, whether, you know, because I've been that officer before where you're waiting for your relief and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and then you realize, well, I'm not getting a break today. So I always wanted to make sure that if I was that officer, I would go around and make sure, did you get a break? Did you get a break? Did you get a break? So that that's where I was um, posted that day. Man, I wish you worked at my facility, man, because uh, I have to hold it a lot, you know? It'd be, it'd be nice for you to be out there roaming the halls, man. Uh, when yeah, they, yeah. Walk us through the situation. So what So what? What happened? Hmm. Well, um, I was on my way to uh, relieve an officer for his lunch break. Um, and on that typical, on that particular day, we had certain inmates on what's called like um, rotating lockdowns. So uh, without getting into like a big explanation, we had people that were, you know, in disciplinary modes or disciplinary uh, uh, positions. And in our jail cell, whenever you had to open up a, uh, a cell, you physically had to go into the range and open it. We had to manually unopen it or open it. So again, many times, this is something I've done before thousands of times, there's one officer on the post and one officer comes to um, relieve them. But if you need to uh, rotate the, the inmates, one officer mans the door and one officer goes in there and you manually unlock the doors and you rotate the inmates around and you lock them up and then you head out. So in my situation, I went to relieve my post officer and he asked, he said, oh, before I go on my break, do you mind rotating a certain block? Yep, sure, no problem. Regular routine stuff, something I've done a thousand times before. Mm-hmm. So we went to a certain block. And of course, you know, we did our regular uh, procedures, something that we've done every day. I went into um, into a range or a block, I guess you could say. So there's an open range, um, a common area, I guess you could say. And there's individual cell blocks. So in this particular block, it was... Can't remember exactly how many were in there, but I want to say there was maybe 18, maybe 18. So there was about five or six locked up. The rest were free ranging. And when I say free ranging, they were just running, not running, but they were just, you know, sitting at the table, walking around. And many times, depending on an officer's comfort level, you can choose before you go into that range, you can choose to ask the inmates to go back in their cells, close the door. You don't have to go in there unless you don't want to. So these were inmates that I had interacted with many times before. They knew me. I knew them. Um, I had a good rapport with them, or so I thought. And, you know, I've always made a point that, you know, if I don't go in there, it's because I don't feel comfortable. I felt totally comfortable that day. So like a regular routine, I asked to go inside. They let me in. They were saying, hello, how's, how's John today? And again, I'd, I'd worked with these guys many times before. I actually think I was their post officer the day before. So these were inmates that I knew that I had interacted with, that I had good rapport with, walked in, said, hi, cracked a joke. People were laughing kind of thing. And I said, okay, who's coming out to my, you know, which one's coming out? And they said, the officer on post said, you know, can you release this person, lock up that person? Sure. Went to one of the doors, opened it up like normal. And I said, okay, whoever, you know, I said, we're closing time or switching time, just making, you know, light of the situation. And nothing I ever not said before. 
people were asking how my day was going pretty good. And then at one point, one of the inmates said, oh, can I go grab a, a glass of water before I get locked up? Standard stuff. They always ask. Now, depending on the officer, you could you could say, no, you don't have time. For me, I was always like, if it's four more seconds for you to get a glass of water, that's fine. Go ahead, right? And as that certain inmate went to go grab a glass of water, I turned my head to the, to the post officer and I said, who is getting locked down next? And that was the last thing I ended up saying because... I didn't even get a chance to turn my head around and I just felt this big boom right here and on the right side of my head. And I remember just thinking, whoa, what was that? Right. And then it was literally just a blur of kicks, punches, a whole like, like thunderstorm just started raining down on me. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if I just got hit, if I just got shot. I didn't know what hit me. Mm -hmm. I just remember trying to get my bearings and just, just getting pumped down, 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 down. Before I knew it, I was literally on the ground, um, in what would be considered like a, a recovery position, just trying to navigate what's happening here. Right. Um, I remember trying to get up. I couldn't get up. I remember trying to, you know, stand up. They were pushing me down and I didn't know how many were there. I didn't know, you know, and I just kept saying in my head over and over, what's happening? What's going on? You know, and it was funny because I could only remember what was from my vantage point. I've heard stories from officers that day, officers that responded, people that were in there about what was going on around me. And it was so funny because apparently the alarm was going off. There was OC spray getting sprayed everywhere. There was yelling. I couldn't hear any of that. Mm. Don't know why, but it just, I remember thinking, where's the alarm? Where's the spray? I'm thinking, because I had been on the other side of when things were happening. I remember right. the alarm going off. Like when the alarm goes off in an institution, everybody hears it, right? Right. The cold, the cold blue. And I remember thinking, I can't hear the alarm. I can't, you know. And as I'm trying to stand up, I remember getting hit in the head over and over. And I've never really actually, as far as I remember, been, what would you call, knocked out before. But I remember thinking like, oh, it's getting harder to navigate, navigate. And I had my, um, I had the key in my hand. Right? I still had the key that was, you know, meant to manually lock the cells. And as I'm getting, you know, pummeled and pummeled, I, I feel hands grabbing at the key. And I'm thinking, oh, man, they're going for the key. They're going for the key. And right. leading up to this, I always remembered in my training, you know, in the academy, if you ever if you ever find yourself in a situation, don't let them get the key. Because if they get the key, then you're in trouble, right? And as they're prying my hand open, prying my hand open, I remember thinking, Okay, I'm pretty sure I know where I am in the range. And I thought if I could slide the key under the bar or throw the key between the, the, the bars, then that's okay, right? They wouldn't be able to get the key. So in, a, in an act of, I guess, pure desperation, I just threw the key at the bars, hoping it would slide under, hoping it would go through. And I heard that key go bang off the block. And I thought, ah, shit, that's oh, not good. That's not good, right? Now... I can't tell if I'm knocked out or I can't tell if I'm, if I'm conscious, but I remember thinking somebody's grabbing my, my uniform and they started dragging me across the floor that way. And there's yelling and now I'm hearing yelling and screaming. Now I'm hearing, you know, chaos in there. And then I remember getting dragged into a cell and I remember they, they closed the cell behind me and I just heard the key go in that cell and I heard it go click. And I thought, Oh shit, this is bad. Like now I'm in a bad spot because now I'm locked in a cell. Right. And now I don't know what's happening. I don't know, you know, I don't know if I'm in there by myself. I don't know if I'm, if I'm in there with somebody else. And then sure enough, somebody grabs me right here in the cell. 
And then I feel this blade poke me right here. And the guy says, if you fucking move, you're dead. So now I'm thinking, ooh, how much worse could this get, right? Right. And that guy in there grabs my cuffs, takes my right hand, cuffs me to the bunk bed. And he says, same idea. If you move, you're dead. And then I thought to myself, wow, now I'm, it can't get any worse. And it can't get any worse. So now I'm locked in this cell with this guy. He's got a, he's got a weapon. I'm handcuffed to the bunk. I literally can't do anything. And now I can see outside my cell very, you know, from the, I'm looking out in the cell into the range and I just see chaos out there. I see officers in the, in the range. I see officers on the other side of the bar. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're screaming. And I remember just thinking, what's going on? What's going on? That, that was just the, like a, like a broken record in my head. What's going on? How is this happening? What's going on? Right. And it's, it's funny because, um, everything happened in such slow motion, like time stood still, you know, apparently all that happened in a span of, you know, 40 seconds or 45 seconds. I'm telling you, I had no sense of nothing, nothing. I knew, I absolutely knew what, I had no idea what was going on. All in my, all that my brain could process that at that point was what's happening what's happening? How did I get here? What's going on? Is this really happening? Like it just, that, that shock comes over you. Right. So finally, I want to say maybe after, you know, don't even know how much time passed, maybe, maybe four minutes, things started to settle, right? Things started to settle. Um, there were cheers in the inmate range. They were, you know, People were saying, we got him, we got him, we got him. People were like celebrating, laughing. I remember just thinking, yeah, you got me. Like, yeah. So right away, um, all I just thought was, okay, you're in a bad spot, but don't lose your head, right? Stay calm, stay calm. Again, in my head, what's going on? I don't understand how this happened. Stay calm, try and stay calm, right? And just try and make the best of what's happening here. Yeah, you're handcuffed. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, you're in here with a guy who's got a, a, a knife or a weapon. That's not good either. But what do you still have here? You're still alive. So that's a plus. Now you just got to work on staying alive. And for me, that meant just do whatever you got to do to stay alive. Because I knew that there was a process happening outside. I knew there was things in place. I knew there was something going on. But I could never understand. I never I never got a sense of what was going on. Um. Yeah, and then it just turned into just a bad moment after a bad moment after a bad moment. And then, yeah, it just, it was just, uh, yeah, you, it's, it's funny where your mind goes once you realize, you know, um, once you realize, you know, how bad things are getting. I think you're, I mean, you experienced, I think, every correctional officer's worst nightmare. Um, mm. You know, we walk around our facilities and we're extremely comfortable. We're extremely confident. But the reality is, at any given time, no matter what level of security you're at, no matter what's going on, we could be in the situation that you were in. Uh, mm. It doesn't matter if it's four inmates or 40 inmates or 400 inmates. 
if they decide that they want to take us, they take us. And 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 you said something that that really kind of bothered me. Uh, a couple of things is number one, you said that these are guys you got along with. These are guys that that you knew that you had a decent rapport with, and, and you had absolutely no, uh, you know, trepidation going into the unit. You didn't. You didn't. There weren't any signs. There weren't any warnings. It was just all of a sudden. You know, and 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 for me. Uh, you know, somebody who's worked in the in the business for a long time, other other officers, friends of mine that have worked in the business a long time, we're, we're in that same predicament all of the time. You know, this is a this is a matter of are we going to be able to go home or not every single day, and I don't think we understand that. So, you're in the room mm-hmm. with the guy is, and 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 like you said, the process is going on. I'm assuming they had some sort of negotiation team. Or somebody working with it. Did you ever get a chance to talk to them? Did they ever? Uh, did they get a phone in to talk to you? I mean, was there any of that going on? Well, it was funny because um, we did. Like there was there was a negotiator um, on site. Um, that's ultimately how I got out. I, w- I was negotiated, so that was that was kind of the end result of it. Um, but a lot of a lot of the initial stages of, of negotiating was just, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't go very well in the initial stages. Um, you know, because I got a sense of the, the inmates in there, they had a plan, but they didn't really have a plan up until that point. You know, they always thought, you know, if we, if we, if we got somebody, then we'll kind of, you know, come up with this plan. But once they got me and once they realized like, Oh, right. this actually worked their, their, their strategy worked. They didn't have a plan at that point. They just thought, oh, now what do we do, right? Which is kind of typical of, of you know, you know, uh, how do I say this correctly? Kind of typical of, of some of the planning stages of some of the inmates that I worked with. They they never thought out of a plan, you know, to the end. They always thought about it this way, and then they'll make it up that way. So right. I realized right away that once, they, once their plan had played out, they didn't have a plan at that point. You know, they were making pretty ludicrous demands in terms of, you know, what I, what I knew was feasible, what I knew was not feasible. Um, you know, they, they talked about, you know, we're going to, we're going to get to the airport and we're going to, we're going to get on a plane. And I remember just thinking in my head, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Then they made crazy plans about, you know, we're going to, we're going to get this food delivered and we're going to get, you know, that kind of, you know, all these, these simple things that they wanted that they don't, they don't have access to. And I thought, well, that's probably a more realistic scenario. Right. And then you, you go through these stages where you're thinking, you know, I knew what they could probably get access to, but I was also respectful of the negotiation process. And a lot of the things that they asked for that I thought in my head was really, really easy, they were not getting, right? It was a lot of, no, you're not getting this, no, you're not getting that. And the most frustrating part about it was that because I was literally helpless in there, anytime that something in that negotiation process didn't go their way, made them, made them upset, made them angry. They took it out on me. So that was the part that I really had a hard time dealing with because again, when you're a hostage, you're literally at their mercy in every sense of the word. So if they got angry, guess what? They took it out on me. If they didn't like how something was going on, guess what? They took it out on me. So that part, I really, really tried to navigate as best I could. Um, and for the most part, you know, there was a lot of, fear mongering. There was a lot of, you know, threats. There was a lot of, 
you know, stuff that I thought, okay, if I can get, if I can hang on for another 10 minutes, then that's good. I just knew that the longer this, this played out mm-hmm. ultimately was, was going to be better in my case. I always thought that I was always told and I, and I was trained that the worst things usually happen in the first two, three, four, five, five minutes where the, where the chaos is going on. And I thought, okay, if I survived the chaos, that's a good sign. And I just remember again in my head thinking, as long as you stay alive, you're okay. As long as you stay alive, you're okay. And then what in my mind meant when I kept telling myself, stay alive, just do whatever you got to do to stay alive, do whatever you need to do to stay alive. And during that, that whole ordeal, my, again, my mind went to some pretty dark places, pretty dark, pretty, um, animalistic stages where I thought, what do I need to do in order to survive? And there was literally, and I remember this very well in my mind, there was literally a point in the whole part where um, I experienced what's called um, uh, depersonalization. And what that means is that basically it, when somebody is experiencing, you know, trauma or, or a traumatic event or something that is so, um, that is just so massive, you have what's called an outer body experience, right? Like you literally, your, 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 your mind needs your body. And I remember having a point where early on when I was talking about, you know, what's happening, what's happening, I don't understand, I don't understand. I saw myself up looking down in the cell with that individual where I was handcuffed. And I remember thinking to myself, holy crap, I can see myself. I can literally see myself thinking, and I'm aware of this. I can see myself from a different angle. And I thought, now what's happening? Like, am I dying? Am I, am I having like an outer body experience? And I just remember thinking to myself, yeah, look at you. Like you're in a bad spot. You are in a really bad spot. So this is what's going to happen, John. And this, this to me was kind of like the, the turning point in where my mind was set. There's three things that are going to happen here. Either you're going to die right there, right? Either you're going to kill that guy somehow. You're going to find a way to kill that guy. Or you're going to get out of here. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's, that's all that's going to happen here. Either one, two, or three. So once those kind of three thoughts came over my mind, that's when I realized, okay, now you've got to focus. Now you've got a plan. Now you've got a strategy because one of these three things is going to happen. It's either going to happen because you caused it. It's either going to happen because something else out of your control is going to happen. But one of these three things are going to go down. What's it going to be? And as soon as I got my mind on that level, then I was like, okay, I'm either going to kill this guy somehow or I'm getting out of here. Uh, not even going to think about that first one. And then that's where I kind of focused, had a plan together. And I just thought, okay, focus on those, one of those two things. And then you'll be fine. Focus on what you can control at that point, which was very little, but I thought I can at least control my thoughts. And I'm only going to think about these two scenarios. I find it amazing that in the middle of all this, you were able to keep your head to think about, uh, go back to your training. I mean, the things that you're saying that you thought about are, you know, exactly what people are taught, you know, when they're, yeah. you know, the, the, the four hour in service that we have about being a hostage, you know, I mean, where they, they talk about that, but I, I find it amazing that you were able to have those clear 
thoughts uh, during this whole ordeal. How long? How long? Was there a point when you were in there that you're like, I think, I think I'm gonna get out of here, or was it, or, 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 or did you even let yourself go there while you were in that cell? Um, there, there was a point, uh, towards the end where I thought, um, you know, things looking good. And there was a point where, where I thought, okay, if this happens and this happens, I could be, you know, I I could be in a good spot here. And it's funny because you have to understand in that particular scenario, not everybody was a participant. Like there was, I want to say maybe 18, 18 inmates in there, maybe only from my experience, from what I, from what I could tell and from what I could uh, see. I want to say there was maybe about seven or eight people that were actively involved, right? And it's funny because I got to see kind of the hierarchy in that range kind of play out. I saw some of the mouthpieces in there trying to actively recruit other inmates to get involved. I heard other inmates kind of being like, I want nothing to do with this, right? Like you could tell not everyone in there was in on that plan. So it was it was interesting to see how that dynamic worked where they thought, you know, some people are involved and they're seeing this to the end. Other people are just, I want nothing to do with this. Right. So, um, I always try to remember things when I was in there. Cause again, thinking that I'm either going to kill this guy or I'm going to get out of here. I always thought, try and remember what you can make a note of what you can see, make a note of what you can hear. Right. Because if you're getting out of here, all that's going to come down to, again, the investigation, the debriefing, all that kind of stuff. So any kind of information that I could remember, I just remember thinking, Remember that. Remember that what this person said. Remember what this person said. Remember what they're saying. Remember what they're talking about. Any detail that I could because they weren't letting me see a lot. A lot of the times, the individual that was in there with me, he had my head down. So he made me kind of stare at the floor. So I would constantly see, you know, him pacing back and forth. And of course, they had a sheet up on the block, on the on the bar, so I couldn't see what was going on there. They only allowed me to see what they wanted me to see. And again, the part of the stuff that I hated that I was just, you know, totally helpless was anytime they needed to make a, an example of me or, you know, show force, then they would just, you know, put me on display. They would remind the people on the other side, like we've got one of you and, you know, we can, we can kill him. We can kill him. They kept saying that we, you know, you want him to die in here. You want, you know, you want, you know, just a lot of fear mongering stuff that I just, again, tried to, not be a part of, but they, they brought me some places where I just, I couldn't keep my cool and I lost my cool a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I never let them take my cool away for very long. I thought, okay, I might lose my shit for about five or six seconds, but then I'm coming right back. That's all I'm going to give them. Right. And I think that frustrated them because I know that if I was to, you know, plead for my life and all that kind of stuff, then, then it just showed the more power they had over me. And even though they had a pretty, powerful hold on me. I didn't let them get any more than, than I let them to. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're in control of me. Yeah. You're, you know, but there are certain things that I'm not going to do for you. Right? right. They wanted me to lead for my life over the radio. They wanted me to, and I was kind of like, Nope, not doing that, not doing that. And again, when they didn't like how things are going, then they kind of took it out on me. So that part, I just couldn't help that. Couldn't fight that. Just, you just had to, you just had to take it. So that part I really struggled with. Do you think that, um, you were treated any better or any worse because of your rapport with these guys? Um, do you think that because the way you carried yourself as an officer had something to do with the way that, that this ended, or do you think that none of that mattered? 
I I like to think that um, I like to think that maybe my rapport did help me out. I mean, obviously, you know, they were saying things that you know I didn't know if they were just talking because they wanted me to hear that or if they were actually being genuine. Um, but a couple of them were saying, you know, oh, we wish we wish it wasn't you. And you know, when you came in, we thought, oh man, not John. We don't want to do this to John, kind of thing. They did drop other names of other officers, and again, I don't know if they were just trying to make me feel better or they were legitimate about it, but they would say, you know, oh, if it was this guy, he'd have been dead. And if it was this guy, we would, you know, he would have been dead. So it's, it's something that I always wonder, like, you know, did, was I targeted? Did they know it was going to be me? Because I think that at the end of the day, they were going to grab whoever was next and it just happened to be me. And maybe they hesitated a little bit, whether they were genuine about it or not, I'll never know. But I always made sure that, you know, and, and this is more of us, this goes along the lines of just, you know, an individual's how they conduct themselves. They always told us in the academy, in the training college, and again, this is pretty much standard for anybody getting in corrections. You're better off just to be yourself mm-hmm. and just be genuine and just be who you are as opposed to being something that you're not. Because the inmates, they'll know that. They'll know that you're not being genuine, right? They They watch you all day. So they know who the asshole is. They know who, who's the nice officer. They know that. Right. And if you try to put on a facade and be something you're not, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to hone in on that. They're going to know. So I never tried to be anything that I was not on, on the job. I always tried to treat people with the same respect. Didn't didn't matter to me what you're in there for, what your charges were, what your backstory was to me. I didn't care. I just thought I'm in here with you for the next, you know, 12 hours and we just got to get along. We don't have to be friends, but we just got to get along. So as long as I treat you with respect, you treat me with respect, you know, then, then that was my, that was my, that was the way I tried to conduct myself. So did it help me that day on my, in my situation? I like to think, I, I like to think that it did, but I, I, I really don't know. It's, it's a tough question to answer. When you, uh, what did, did it, so did they, when it when it ended, it was four four and a half hours. Uh, did they come in and get you? Did the did the inmates let you go? Uh, what what did the what did the conclusion of this look like? So towards so basically how it played out was um, in in the negotiation process. From what I remember, um, they worked in stages. So one thing I didn't remember, I did forgot to mention was they had actually. Um, jam the, the key lock in the cell with soap. So I had, again, I just had all these barriers in front of me. I'm in the cell, I'm locked in the cell, I'm handcuffed, I'm, I'm, you know, I have a weapon on me and the cell door is like locked up. So there was all these barriers in front of me. And as the negotiation process went on, it was just about first, we got to make sure this is out of the way. So it was just about, we got to get that, we got to get the soap out of the lock. So that was all that was focused on, get the, you know, work on this barrier, then work on this barrier, then work on this barrier. Finally, towards the end of it, um, they had come to an agreement that, okay, we're going to let them go. We're going to let them go because of this, and we're going to let them go because of this. So when it came time for me actually to to come out, um, they let me walk out on my own, which was, you know, kind of... I don't want to say stressful, but that was probably the most nerve wracking part because that was the part where I thought, okay, if things are going to go south again, it's probably going to be now. And I remember thinking once my window of opportunity to 
to exit, I thought, do I run out? Do I sprint out? Or do I just walk out? Right. And the agreement was, we're going to let him walk out. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to walk out. So once all the barriers were removed, the handcuffs was off. Um, I don't remember if the weapon ever got out at all. I think that was one part where I was a little um, not certain how that would play out. Because if I remember correctly, the individual that was in there with me, he still had the weapon. So I thought, do I walk out with my back to him? Do I walk out facing him? But I was told uh, that we're going to let him walk out. So I thought, okay, don't do anything more at this point to to break that trust that was built up. Because if you're saying I'm going to walk out, then that's what I'm going to do. That was the agreement. So the door was opened. I stood up. I just walked out like normal as best as I could. Walked into what's called the Sally Port door. The, the, the radio was called. They opened the door. The door was buzzed. And I remember as soon as that buzzed, as soon as that door closed behind me, that's when I knew I was safe. When I heard that door clink behind me, and I thought, okay, now I'm safe. Um, another officer on duty was there to escort me out, and I remember thinking as I was walking out, I thought, you know, do I look over at them? Do I look? No, I said, no, just look down the hall and just keep walking. And it was so quiet at that point. Everybody, like there wasn't a sound. I remember thinking, just walking down the range, and there was not a sound. And I just remember thinking, keep your eyes forward, just walk. Once I got down the range and out of the out of the, the hallway door, I got out of the hallway door, and I remember the first person I saw, the, f- the first person I saw when I got out of there was uh, a guy that I went to high school with. He was a paramedic. Saw him, saw him and his partner there. And then as I'm walking towards him, I remember thinking, hey, I know you. I went to school with you, right? And it was funny. I'll never I'll never forget this. He he put his hand on my cheek, and he went, hey, Johnny, it's it's Tuck, right? And he's like this. And I go, yeah, I know you. Like, I know you. And then I remember thinking, I wanted to look over to my right because apparently what I was told was the out in the hallway there, the, the entire hallway was filled with officers. Everybody was there. Everybody on shift was there. It was just full. And I remember looking over to my right and going, holy man, everybody's here. Like, everybody's here. Even even officers I'd never been recognized before. Everybody was here. And again, Tuck kind of pulled my head over this way and he goes, he goes we're going we're gonna to take you to the hospital, John. And I thought, and at this point, I'm thinking, am I in shock? Am I in disbelief? Am I, you know, and he said, we're going to take you to the hospital. And then I said, okay, that's, that's probably a good idea. And then my superintendent was there and he, he was, he, you know, kind of looked at me and said, it was John, we're going to take you to the hospital. He said, <sighs> he said, your wife and your, and your parents are going to be there. And then the, then the emotions just took over. And then I remember thinking, Oh yeah, they're going to be there because I, I, I had thought about them pretty heavily when I was in there in the, in those kind of dark moments. But when, when you're out and you're actually told, okay, we're taking a hospital, you're going to be safe. Your wife and your parents are going to be there. Then you realize I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Right. And then, 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 yeah, that was, that's, that's the real part where I knew like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be safe now. I'm going to be all right. You talked about uh, you. You did a, a talk and the, the videos on YouTube, and you, you talked a lot about when you got out of this and, and, and you're out of the hospital. You knew right away that you were going to need some help dealing with what you went through. Um, how? I mean, how did? 
obviously it's a kind of a silly question to say how did you know that but a lot of a lot of us would just put our head down and deny it or we it would take us a while but you you had the self-awareness to say you know what I'm I'm going to need some assistance so it kind of walk us through that process and it, it seems like through this whole thing you're 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 way too level headed of a man to be a correctional officer first of all the rest of us are like raving lunatics so you have this really good perspective uh but uh, what was what was going through your mind there you said i i need to get some help well it was it was it was interesting because from a from a physical standpoint, like, you know, my face was pretty bashed up and my eye was, you know, kind of bruised and stuff. But from a physical standpoint, I knew like, hey, I'm, I'm not too bad. I had a couple like, you know, boot prints on my back, which was kind of weird to look at. But for the most part, I thought I did a pretty good job of defending myself. So physically, um, I knew that I was probably going to be okay, but I didn't know, um, what the, what the mental, torment was going to be like. I didn't know what the psychological side was. And the fact that I didn't feel anything directly after kind of scared me, like the, the fear of the unknown. Right. You know, I thought maybe when I got out, I would start screaming and yelling and raging out and lashing out. And But that none of that really happened. You know, uh, I want to say in the first, maybe in the first like six or seven hours after I was out, I was emotional. And I knew that was, that was normal. I knew that was a byproduct of what I had just gone through. And I kept remembering telling myself, you've been through a pretty traumatic event. You've been through a pretty traumatic event. You know, you won't know what's really going on until maybe later. And it wasn't until the next morning when, you know, I got home, I went to my parents' house, everything was fine. I remember waking up from bed the next morning and kind of going, did that just really happen? You know, again, that, that sense of shock, you're kind of like, did that just really happen? That just really happened. And then I remember thinking, you know, looking around going, yeah, that really happened. Yeah, that really happened. Right. Um, and it, it was funny because it wasn't until that morning when, you know, I saw my sisters, I, I had heard my sisters in the house cause I I'd spent the night at my parents' house and both my sisters were there. And I remember the, the reaction I got when I saw them like in the house and it was funny because I thought maybe I'd get emotional. I thought maybe I'd be, you know, but when I saw them or when I heard them, I got angry. I got real angry. And I don't know why I got angry. I just remember thinking, what are they doing here? Why are they here? And, you know, I got furious at them for maybe, you know, maybe four or five seconds. And then right away I kind of snapped back into it and I thought, what was that? that's not me. I don't do that. Like that, that's, that was my first indication of, yeah, there's something going on here. And you know, that was your first sign because in my head, I was thinking you should be happy to see them. You should be, you should be overjoyed. You should be, you know, but I was just so angry. And I remember thinking all these angry, violent, aggressive thoughts. And I thought that's not good. That's not normal. And that's when I kind of realized like, I should probably get ahead of this. Now I should probably go talk to somebody. I should probably, you know, and from that, like that, that same day, like the next day, I remember I called, I called one of my, my coworkers on the phone because the plan was that they were going to take John out of this element. We're going to take him over to a house. We're going to take him on the lake. We're going to, we're going to make sure John's comfortable. And I knew that like, I don't want to run away, run away from this. I want to face this head on. I want to start this process now because I don't know how long this may take. I don't know what's going on, but I knew right away, like, there's something going on up here. And if I don't get ahead of it, I'm going to do it right now. So I called my, one of my coworkers 
And, you know, when he heard me on the phone, he was like, holy shit, John, like, he was the disbelief that I called him. And he said, uh, he didn't even, like, he, he was like, I don't even know how to talk to you. And I said, I don't know how to talk to you either. I said, but I, but I want to talk to somebody. Right. And he said, and I said, can you do that? And he said, yeah, we can do that. And he said, when, when do you want to talk? And I said, today, like, can you make it happen today? And he said, yeah. And that's when I, you know, started seeking help was the very next day, even though, did I want to talk to somebody? Yes. Did I know what it was going to be like? I had no idea. Did I know how that process was going to go? Nope. I had no idea who they were or what they, their story was. Um, and I remember telling my wife, like, I don't want to go hang on the river. I don't want to go, you know, be in a comfort zone. I want to go talk to somebody. And she was just like, okay, we can do that. So when do you want to do it? And I said, today, like right now, like I want to drive over there right now. And that's, that's how it started. You know, I just, the, when you know something's wrong and you don't know what it is, you, you know, I just went after it right away. So we talked a little bit about before the show about some of the triggers you had and, and kind of what your recovery looked like. Can you share some of that with us? You, you, you talked about certain words, uh, triggering certain emotions and, and things like that. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I found out the hard way what, uh, what a trigger was or what a trigger is. Um, there were certain words that I literally couldn't say out loud. I could hear them and I'd have a reaction to them, but to hear them come out of my own mouth was, was hard. Um, words like, you know, trauma, victim, uh, you know, torment, torture, nightmares, there was about maybe six or seven words that I just, I couldn't say, I couldn't say. I would have such a physical reaction to them that those were the parts that, that were, I was not really prepared for, didn't know how to navigate them. Um, didn't know what a panic attack was, didn't know what an anxiety attack was, didn't know how crippling they could be. Um, the, the physical reaction I had to certain, certain, Triggers were, were anything from um, shortness of breath. My heart would race so fast. I felt like I'd be dying. Um, I I didn't know how I didn't know how to navigate those those physical feelings. A lot of times I struggle with them. I try to fight them off, which I found out the hard way just made things worse. Um, had a lot of you know very emotional, very stressful, very. Um, physically exhausting sessions with my psychologist where, you know, learning how to navigate the, this new normal for me was just, was a struggle because I always thought that I can't let this beat me. I can't let this control me that I'm going to, you know, take control over it. But the more that I struggled against it, the worse it made it. And it wasn't until I kind of finally accepted that this could be the new normal for you for a while until things started actually getting better. Um, trying to figure out what worked, what didn't work, um, in terms of coping, um, trying to realize that certain things didn't work like they used to before. Um, you know, I, I, I knew that, uh, there were days where I, you know, I knew that I was isolating myself from people. Um, I knew that I didn't want to see people and there was a lot of shame with that. 
there was a lot of uh, self-loathing, noting, noting that, knowing that I couldn't handle being around people. Um, and, and, and it's funny because on the, on the other side of that, you know, people that want to help you, um, a lot of times they don't know how, mm-hmm. and, you know, I got sick of hearing, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Very quick. I got sick of that. You know, I would, I would just, you know, make up lies that, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. When in my head, I'm going, if you fucking tell me that question one more time, I'm going to like punch you. Right. right? So, um, I didn't know what was going to work for me. I knew that was what was working for other people in terms of, you know, recovery, but I, I was, I was very aggressive in my recovery. Um, still am. Um, and it was funny because my psychologist who I luckily got on a pretty good uh, role with early on, I was told that, you know, you're gonna have to find a psychologist that you like. And I said, well, what does that mean? Well, you might talk to a psychologist that, you know, you might not get along with. And if you're not willing to open up and, 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 you know, navigate those, those, uh, that recovery stage, then it might not work. So I thought, great. Now I got to find a psychologist that I like. Right. So luckily I did find one, which was, which was, I was very thankful for. And him and I kind of butted heads because he would say that, you know, you're being a little aggressive in your recovery. And whereas I would say, I like to think that I'm being a little motivated, you know? So we kind of had that funny little, you know, he would always say, you know, slow down, John. And I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going on this. So, um, yeah, I like, my bad day typically would involve a panic attack typically would involve a big adrenaline dump, which again, I didn't know what adrenaline dump was until it happened. Um, it would be just hard to give myself time to take care of myself. That's the part that I had a really hard time with. I just thought that if I went at this recovery as hard and as fast as I can, then things would get back to normal. And I still don't know what normal is now right. in terms of how long this has been. So did still, you, did, did you go back? You didn't go back to the facility afterwards, did you? Or did you go back to work? Yeah, I tried to go back to work in a different, in a different role, um, in a different capacity. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, hesitation on that. I had a lot of people in my, in my, in my inner circle kind of, advise against that, including, you know, my wife, my family, um, my psychologist, pretty much everybody was kind of like, why would you go back there? And it was more so that I, I wanted to go back there just, just for myself. I needed to go back there and, and I wasn't trying to prove anything to myself, but I wanted to go back there just to make sure that if, if this chapter of my life is over, then it's going to be over on my terms. It's not going to be over on, on their terms. Sure. You know, I didn't, I didn't think that I was going to be a correctional officer for, for 20, 30 years. I, I thought maybe that I would just move to a different part of the ministry. Um, so I thought to myself, if I'm, if I'm not going to be working in that field anymore, it's going to be on my terms, not on their terms. Cause they had taken so much away from me on that day that I wasn't going to allow them to take anything more. So I thought if I'm not going to be able to work there, it's cause it's going to be because I can't work there. Not because you, you took me out of there. Sure. So, I, I gave it an honest shot. I tried to work in a different capacity, but I just couldn't be there anymore. And I, I was making progression in terms of um, going through some, some, some barriers. I actually um, was able to walk and, and this was part of a part of my recovery stage that I kind of just made up on my own, but I was able to under different circumstances, walk back down the same hallway 
walk back down the same range, walk into the same cell. And it's, and it's weird because when I got in there, I fully expected to freak out, have a panic attack, have all these things happen. And none of that happened. I walked into the cell, I closed the door, I sat down, I placed my right hand over on the side, like it was handcuffed before. And I remember thinking, okay, you're back in here now and you're fine. So at that point I thought, okay, you're going to be okay. And then I thought I was going to be okay in that building, but it just, it, it didn't work. Even though I was on the other side of the building, not directly near what stuff happened. Um, it, it just didn't work. And then that's when I was okay with saying, okay, that part is, is done now. Now it's time to move on. How did your, how did your coworkers uh, treat you after this situation? Were they, were they different? Were they weird around you? Did they, were they walking on eggshells or, or, or was it business as usual for them and you were kind of fighting this on your own or? Um, it was, it was different with everybody. I mean, this was, you have to understand it in, in the Kenora jail, it's a small bucket. So we're, we were really close. Um, this, this incident, um, really hit some of my coworkers really hard. Um, you know, everybody that day witnessed something traumatic in their own, in their own, uh, unique scenario, unique situation. And early on in my recovery, I made a point to, um, try and reach out to as many of them as I could, knowing that, you know, I wanted to try and help them recover if, if they would allow me to, um, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to talk with everybody, but I remember I tried my, I, I, at least, I at least made the effort to, some people wanted to talk to me, some people didn't. And I thought that's okay. Um, if you want to talk to me, I'm here. Um, I just wanted to make sure that they knew that, Hey, I'm going to be okay. And if I'm going to be okay, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be okay too. Sure. Um, you know, I, I miss a lot of them. I don't see many of them anymore. Um, I see a couple of them maybe in town from time to time. Everyone, everyone was just fantastic in terms of, you know, being supportive and helping me and, and just taking care of me. Um, and not just myself, my entire family, like the entire staff, um, from top to bottom of the jail had, were just phenomenal. Um, very accommodating, very understanding, um, very supported, lots of love from them. And I in turn tried to just give some of that back and, and know that, you know, some people didn't talk to me before. Some people didn't talk to me after, and that's okay. I didn't want to go in there and, and rock their world any more than it already had been. Um, but I wanted to make sure that they knew that, you know, if they wanted to talk or if they needed a help or if they needed something, I was there for them because everybody was there for me that day. Nice. Has the facility uh, undergone any changes? Have they have they stepped up the security procedures? Have they done anything different? to to maybe help I know, I know you can't necessarily always prevent this kind of thing from happening mm. but but have they been proactive in that manner uh or is it business as usual um there there has been some some security changes in there um some of the structures some of the some of the um uh, the word escapes me now but some of the the infrastructure I guess you mm -hmm. could say has, has been upgraded um some of the new procedures in place now um, are in are in are set so that my scenario shouldn't happen anymore, shouldn't happen ever again. Um, a lot of the the locking mechanisms have been set to like a more of an automatic um, setting. So 
nobody, as far as I know, should be in the same situation that I was in. I think that I think that that form of operations is probably, uh, at least in the Canard Jail, you know, been changed permanently. There's always going to be a risk of element or a, an element of, of danger in that line of duty. But in terms of my scenario specifically, they they made some some pretty sweeping changes pretty fast. So I was I was quite thankful to see that. For people listening, John, is there any advice that you can give them to if if they find themselves in in a situation that's similar to yours? Uh, do you have any advice for them? Do you have anything that you can tell them to maybe help them through through that? Well, as much as I'd like to think that it won't happen anymore or won't happen ever again. Uh, chances are that it will one day. Um, and for somebody who's lived through it, uh, I could say that, you know, you, you have to, you have to try and stay calm. You have to try and just go somewhere in your mind that you, that makes you feel comfortable, makes you feel safe. Um, know that you're not going to be left behind. Know that, you know, your brothers and sisters are, <sighs> know that they're coming to get you. Know that they're, they're not going to leave you in there. And just, just try and, um, just try and stay alive. Do whatever you need to do to stay alive because that's the one thing that you have to do. You have to stay alive and it doesn't matter how bad it gets. Um, you'll figure out right away how bad it is. Um, but you can still help people when you're in there. It doesn't, doesn't feel like it, but you can still help people and you can help them by, by just keeping a cool head. I remember thinking the worst thing I could do right now, the worst thing that would make my situation worse, the worst thing that would make it worse for them is to just lose my shit. I remember thinking if I lose my shit and I start letting loose, that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help me, but it also doesn't help them out there. They're doing their job and they're working on it. And you gotta be, you gotta keep it together for them. Keep it together for yourself. But you gotta keep it together for them too. Um, you know, you'll you'll be afraid and that's okay that's okay to be afraid in there because you know you 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 figure out in that you figure out in that in that scenario what really matters you know when you're when you're faced uh with your own mortality you find out right away what matters and you make sure that like, like I remember that I remember that as clear as day today. And you just remember what matters. And then you, you, you hold on to those moments and those thoughts and you think, you know, it, it changes you, but it doesn't change you. It doesn't change you for the wrong reasons. It, it ultimately changes you for the, for the right reasons. And I'm at this stage now where I'm trying to figure out 
the why, why did this happen? What did this mean? Why this happened to me? Um, but you know, maybe it's because I get to share my story. Maybe it's because someone else needs to hear this. Maybe it's because someone else can, can benefit from this. So, um, even though it's not the best topic to talk about, I know that people in this line of work still do this dangerous job every day right now. Um, so if there's someone that can benefit from me sharing this part, then, then it's at least me surviving was worth it. At least on that level, um, this is going to help somebody. And again, if you're ever in that situation, know that you can still help people even there. And, um, yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm one of those kind of utopian people that believe everything happens for a reason. And, and I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, for sharing your story. Um, and, uh, this, you know, topics like this we need because this is our reality. This is what we live every single day and, mm. and we need to hear it, uh, so we understand, so we don't take for granted kind of the situations that we're in at work because, uh, we don't know. We don't know if we're going to leave, uh, the same way we came in or not. We just, we don't know. Um, and, yeah. and the, and the thing that I, that I want to focus on that I'm, that I'm kind of the most, uh, just, I admire the most about you is that you were able to recognize right away. Yeah. I need to, I need to, uh, get on my recovery. I need to hit it hard and, and I, I need the support system to, to do it. Um, and a, a lot of people, when they experience trauma, when they go through things, they're, they, they bottle it up. They, they push it aside. Uh, you know, I, I, I've known officers that get assaulted, that they're back to work too soon, or they start becoming more aggressive, or they start participating in different activities, you know, that are, that are, that are not helping their situation because they refuse to admit or acknowledge or confront what, you know, what's going on. And, uh, to hear from a guy like you, uh, that, Hey, it's all right, man, you can, you can get through these things. You just have to acknowledge them and do it. I mean, it's a huge help, man. I, I, I know that there's somebody that's going to hear this. that's going to listen. That's going to, that's going to have their life changed for the better because you were, you know, that you were speaking tonight. So I, I really, I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and sharing your story, man. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you connected with me and we made this happen. Well, you can thank your wife because, uh, you know, I I, uh, I stumbled across her on Twitter. Uh, I don't even know how I, I, I just I, I follow people. And then and then she writes these these terrific things. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so I'm, I'm glad again. It's just weird how things line up, man, how things work. And uh, uh, at some point, uh, me and you are going to convince her. Uh, to share her side of this because um, we, as correctional officers, we go in, we go into work, we've got our mental preparedness, we kind of are living that role, and mm -hmm. we don't understand, and I guess I, I don't even think about what my wife is going through, uh, you know, what, what my friends think about what I do. Uh, you know, I had a situation this week where, 
I had to I had to email my wife real quick. I was going to be late. I was working a double shift, uh, sixteen hours, mm. and I was going to be late. And and I had a situation. I couldn't talk to her about it right now. And I had to really quick send that email. And I knew that that was going to make her wonder, hey, what's going on? What's you know? But I, it was going to be another hour or two before I could talk to her. And um, and so yeah, it, we don't. I don't know if we understand how that affects them as well. And mm-hmm. as, as, as crazy as your part of this story is, there's a whole nother side to this that, that we need to explore. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, you guys are, you guys are just amazing. I can tell that you, you know, that you've got this great support team and, and, um, yeah, it's inspiring, man. You, you you're, uh, you're a hell of a guy, and I appreciate your your service uh, and uh, and the way you carry yourself, man. And I appreciate you being out there and being an advocate for us. I've read a couple of articles where you've you've kind of talked about you know your story and and uh, kind of chiming in on some of the security measures and stuff. And 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 we need that, man. We need we mm-hmm. need everybody uh, talking so we can be safe. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Do you have any um, Do you have any parting words? Anything else you'd like to? Uh, to say before we uh, get out of here for the night, I've kept you a little bit longer than I than I intended, so I didn't want to. No, take up your whole night. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, like I, I'm, I'm, like I said, thankful for the opportunity to uh, to uh, uh, talk and share my story, and that's kind of been my 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 biggest motivator uh, when it comes to talking about that day and just talking about my story because, you know, if if it just helps one person, whether it's to you know, inspire them, educate them, uh, just help them. You know, that, that's kind of where I get the, I get that sense of return back when it comes to helping others. Um, we do a dangerous job and a lot of times in the first responder world, we're just that forgotten. We're just, we're just behind the walls. Right. And it's hard to tell people exactly what it is we do because we're hidden. Nobody sees us. You know, we don't have that, that, that public, uh, perception as, you know, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, nurses, like we're out of the public eye and we deal with, you know, the worst of the worst potentially. And this job will suck the life out of you if you let it. And it's just, it's, you know, even in my short time in corrections, I did my very best to, you know, shield my job, the, the, the real details about my job from the people that I love. Right. And, and, and we do that as a correctional officer. We, we protect them because we don't want them to know what it is we see, what it is we right. face, what we, we have to deal with. Right. So, um, I don't know. I mean, my, my, my parting words are just, you know, take care of yourselves. Um, you know, know that in any scenario, no matter how safe and normal and, and routine things feel, things can change like that. Um, and, you know, just, um, know that if you need help, help is there, help is there in abundance, but you have to be willing to accept that help. And if I can be willing to accept that help that I needed the next day, like there's no reason anyone else should not take that help if they want to, you have to be willing to help yourself and make that active choice to seek that help because no one's going to help you unless you start helping yourself first. That's, that's the biggest thing. And I, and I saw it many times in my short time. And even now, um, being on the other side of correction, seeing, seeing, you know, people in that, in that, in my own situation, you know, going on a year and a half now, 
I still see people that they still don't want to help. They, they still don't want to get that help from that day. And it's just, they have to make that choice to see that help, to get that help because it's there. So right. the help is there. No, you're right. And I think the longer that they wait, uh, the harder it's, it, that, that recovery process is going to be. Um, and, 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 and you're right that the, we have this, we have this tough guy, tough gal attitude and we, and, and, and when it comes to our mental health, when it comes to, you know, having a, uh, you know, a, a happy life, uh, we got to do it. We got to ask for help. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy profession. It's a crazy job and, and we got to do it. All right, John, we're going to get out of here. I appreciate you sharing your story and, uh, and tell your wife, I said, thank you for letting me borrow you uh, for an hour and some change uh tonight and if you would be so kind as to uh get on the comment section of this later and maybe talk to a couple of people that are leaving some comments and some thank yous for you uh that would be awesome i I would really appreciate it all right everybody thanks for stopping by thanks for listening and watching we will be live again next saturday 9 p.m central standard time i will be talking with russ hamilton and we're going to discuss what it is a correctional officer actually does all right guys until next time be smart stay safe stay sane and we'll talk soon